Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning. And so we pray now by your Holy Spirit, we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your Holy Word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. I didn't memorize the preaching text this Sunday. I was appropriately distracted with a very important week because this week, my wife, Monica, began walking. And after the sermon, she's going to say, so basically you're blaming not memorizing the text on me walking? Well, fear not. I'm going to read it, and then I will sing, don't worry. Jonah chapter 1, beginning of verse 17, if you've got your Bibles or your pew Bibles. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, the irony preaching about Jonah is before my conversion to Christianity, I made my living singing and proclaiming against the truthfulness of this story. One of the pieces I regularly would perform in concert was from Porgy and Bess. It ain't necessarily so. It ain't necessarily so. These things that you're liable to read in that Bible, it ain't necessarily so. Jonah, he lived in a whale. Jonah, he lived in a whale. He made his home in that fish's abdomen. Jonah, he lived in a whale. The irony is now, post-conversion, I spend my life teaching that this story is completely and accurately so. See, people, when they look at this moment in the Jonah narrative, the in the belly of the fish moment, 
People have all, had all types of interpretations over the centuries, over the millennia. Uh, some say it's a parable to be parsed, that it's just a metaphor, right? Others have been very creative and think it's a puzzle to somehow be solved. Uh, one commentator uh, suggested, for example, that perhaps in Tarshish there was an inn named the fish, and so Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights. But the bottom line is, when you look at the rest of scripture, the story reads in its plain sense. Jesus himself regarded this story as narrative. See, the challenge we face always when we read miraculous sections of scripture like this, and they're all over the place, is if we as Christians believe that the resurrection actually took place, then it changes our whole understanding of what is possible with God. If we believe in Easter, then we have to have our minds reshaped around suddenly what is possible at the finger of God. C.S. Lewis in his book on miracles says, science is only the notes of the poem. Christianity is the poem itself. Science and faith come together. Science unpacking and discovering and exploring the reality of this incredible, miraculous cosmos. And yet, Scripture gives us the actual poetry, the actual reality. Friends, it's so important that we look at this story and take it seriously because, bottom line, each and every one of us has been in the belly of the fish. Or if you haven't been in the belly of the fish or don't think you have, trust me, it's coming. Every person will at least once, but for many of us, often find ourselves in the belly of the fish. The fish represents here Sheol, as we're told in verse 2, the place of the dead. Jonah has gone to death. Though I've said before, like last week, that this is a comedy, though it's a comedy, Jonah goes to hell in this comedy. And that's what the fish represents that the walls of death are closing around him. He's not yet dead, but he feels he's almost there. And you know what I mean. We get into the belly of the fish in our lives, sometimes physically, sometimes a diagnosis or a series of circumstances will happen and we will literally feel like we are facing death and the jaws of death are closing around us. We are in the belly of the fish. But there's other times when maybe it's not physical, but psychologically, we feel at the core of our being that everything is falling apart around us. I can't go on any further. Life is coming to an end. You're in the belly of the fish. And here's the reason we need to read this story, because there is good news in this story for those who find themselves in the belly of the fish. There's incredibly good news for those whose lives feel like they're falling apart through suffering and brokenness and failure. See, here's what we find. Here's the good news for those in the belly of the fish. The good news is this, that the Lord sends the fish. The Lord provides the fish. The, the fish is doing what the Lord has commanded him. We'll unpack that. It's hard, but we need to recognize that the Lord sends the fish. But not only does the Lord send the fish to swallow Jonah, he sends the fish to save Jonah. This is a salvation story. Jonah is in fact being rescued, not just from the waves, Jonah is being saved from himself. But finally, it's not just that there's good news in the fact that God sends the fish to swallow Jonah and that he sends the fish to save Jonah. 
but that God appoints that the fish shall spit out Jonah, that Jonah's not going to remain forever in the belly of the fish. See, first we see that Jonah, as this Jonah in the belly of the whale, the good news here is that the Lord sends the fish to swallow Jonah. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And it's hard when we confront the reality of God directing and appointing. That's what that word appointed means. Directing, numbering, guiding. When we see that God has guided the fish that consumes us, the crisis or the series of circumstances around us that bring us into the belly of the fish. When we say that God appointed it, we struggle, don't we? But trust me, it's worse if we deny that God is owning this moment. It's much worse to imagine that this moment is simply the result of chaos. See, in the ancient Near East, the sea and everything that lived in it was seen as the place of evil and chaos. The sea was a dangerous, scary place. People died on the sea. There were crazy creatures under the water that you couldn't see that could capsize your boat and destroy you. And so there was a great sense of fear about the sea. And yet, for those who were following after the God of Jonah, they believed something different about their God. Their God, unlike the other gods of the pagan nations who were constantly in contest with these monsters, you know, I hope my God Marduk is bigger than the God of the sea, or I hope my God Chemosh is bigger than the gods of the, the, the monsters of the land. That instead, the God of Jonah, the God of the people of Jonah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the one, as Jonah says last chapter, chapter 1, verse 9, he is the one that made the sea and the dry land. That he's not in contest with these monsters of our world. He is the ultimate creator of the world. Genesis chapter 1, verse 21. We're told that God created the mighty creatures of the sea. He made all the swarms of crazy, lovely, and monstrous fish within the sea, including this fish that is going to swallow up Jonah. God made them. And even further, Psalm 104 then speaks of Leviathan, you know, the fabled sea monster of the deep, Leviathan. Well, it says in Psalm 104 that on the ship, that's where the sea, with the ship on the sea, that's where the ships go. And also there is Leviathan, who you have set there to play, that God has made Leviathan, this sea monster, to play around in the ocean. You know, actually, you can translate the Greek another way that says he's set Leviathan in the sea as God's plaything, that he likes to, you know, play with Leviathan. That the monsters that terrify us, the monsters that come at us in this life, that they are owned by the Lord. They are created by the Lord. They are not in contest with him. It can feel so often like these monsters are going to overwhelm us unless we remember that God owns the monsters. God owns the things that scare us. You know, in our household, we have, as many of you know, named our dogs appropriately. Our mini schnauzer is named Leviathan. He's affectionately known as Levi. We named him after the sea monster of the deep on purpose, just like we named our golden doodle Tiglath-Pileser III. Yes, we affectionately call him Tiggy. Tiglath-Pileser III, who is the Assyrian king that sacked Jerusalem. And you want to say, what is wrong with you people how you name your dogs? And it's all on me. My, 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 my family just puts up with me when I come up with these names. They find the affection names, Levi, Tiggy. But the reason we do this 
The reason we do this is to make a declaration in our homes that those things which the world would be afraid of, these seeming monsters and scary things that are out to get us, when we believe the gospel, they have been tamed and brought to their knees before the living God. I can have Leviathan live in my house because Leviathan is not scary when I remember that God orders Leviathan. And the same with evil kings like Tiglath-Pileser. And I do wonder what our next dog will be named. After all that we've gone through these last few months, after Monica's fall and the shattering of her leg, will we name, what's the monster? What's the fearful thing we will name our next dog after? Will we call the dog Ravine? (laughs) Will we call the dog Cliff? We just call the dog rehab. I don't know. But in the words of R.T. Glover, when St. Paul was in prison under Nero, about to be put to death, Nero would never have imagined, Nero, the big, scary monster king, would never have imagined, thinking he had all the power, Nero would never have imagined that within one century, people would be naming their children Paul and their dogs Nero. This is what God does, is he takes the monsters in our lives and he owns them and he directs them and he appoints them. And I know it sounds hard to believe this, right? That God brought this terrible set of circumstances on me. God owns it. Well, I'll tell you this. The alternative is so much worse because if we believe that God is not owning the monsters and the scary things and the hard moments in our lives, if God is not actually owning it sovereignly, then we are in a world in chaos and confusion that is out of control. The truth is, it is better for you and I, and I share this regularly in my office in pastoral care when someone's gone through a loss or they're going through a really horrible season. And I'll say to them, it is better for you to be angry at God and bring your complaint to him than for you to become an atheist and simply surrender to a world of chaos. Your father in heaven would rather you come and beat upon his chest in anger, acknowledging that this is his world, than for you to flee from the presence of the Lord as Jonah has. You know, it is Ascension Week. On Thursday, we celebrate the Ascension of Christ, which is the enthronement of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what the Ascension means, that he is the true King over creation. And as you consider the sufferings and the mouth of the great fish that surrounds you at times. And you remember in those moments that God owns that fish, that God is not surprised. Then the words of Revelation chapter four is John gets that vision of the throne room of heaven. The good news, he says, behold, there is a throne in heaven. He's in heaven and he sees there's a throne. Thanks be to God. There's a headquarters and a center of power in this universe. But even better than the fact that there's a throne in heaven, he says, behold, there's one seated on the throne. The universe is not up for grabs. And for you and I who know Jesus as Lord and believe that he has ascended and enthroned as king, not only is the truth when we face suffering and when the walls and mouth of death is around us, do we say, yes, there's a throne in heaven and there's someone sitting on it, but I know the name of the one who's seated upon that throne. I know him and he knows me. 
And you know him and he knows you if you're in Christ. We need to begin seeing the good news in the belly of the fish that God sends the fish to swallow Jonah and to swallow us. But even better news is the fact that he's doing it to save us. God appoints the fish, sends the fish to swallow up Jonah to save him. Notice what happens in verse two. Verse two, Jonah starts praying. Verse two, chapter two, sorry, verse one, Jonah starts praying. It says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. This is the first time that Jonah has prayed in this story. He's not been praying. We had a pagan sea captain last chapter who was praying. We had a bunch of pagan sailors that were praying. The prophet wasn't praying at all. Suddenly something's changed in the belly of that fish. Jonah begins praying. He calls out to his God. He cries out to his God and his God hears him. See, this is what the in the belly of the fish moments do for us. Here's how we get saved. We're not just getting saved from drowning in the sea. I mean, in that sense, the fish comes and becomes like, you know, a new little boat to take him on the next three days of his journey. He's saving him from the sea, but more so, the fish is saving Jonah from Jonah. He's saving Jonah from himself and his sin. Because what happens in these moments when suffering and pain and the mouth of death surrounds us is we are stripped back to our most basic selves. And all the lies begin to show that they're lies. All the idols that we've put our trust in, all the things that we said, oh, this is gonna secure me and this, this program and this strategy is gonna save my life, all of them start to fall away because you're dying. Everything's falling apart. And these in the belly of the fish moments strip us down to our core. And they show us that these idols will not save us. We are literally at the end of our rope. It's the reason why Jesus says at the beginning of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You hear what he's saying? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed literally are those who are at the end of their rope. Blessed are those who are horribly overwhelmed and even depressed by the world around them. Blessed are these people? Yes, blessed are they because they can actually see that there is no hope in this life but God alone. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven because they've got only the kingdom of heaven left. Everything else has shown to fail them. And so it is for us in the belly of the fish. It's a saving moment as we are stripped down to our basic beliefs and truths. It's interesting, Jonah says in verse nine of chapter two, the end of his prayer, it's, it's the high point of the prayer. It's the center of the book. And I'd argue this phrase you could say is the center of the whole Bible. Chapter two, verse nine, salvation belongs to the Lord. Unpack that for a minute. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What Jonah is saying in this moment is salvation belongs nowhere else. Just before that, in verse 8, he talks about how idols are worthless and they must be put away. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Whatever strategies Jonah had going to that whale, whatever success metrics he had, whatever he was leaning on for security in his life. And remember, 2 Kings chapter 14 tells us he was a very successful prophet. He had his life together. Things were going great. He was a senior prophet in an expanding kingdom. And yet, Though he had everything, 
He thought he had everything. Jonah had nothing. Because he was fleeing the only one who could save him. In the belly of the fish, Jonah discovers again whom and whom alone he can lean on. Whom and whom alone will bring salvation to him. You know, I was saddened this weekend like many of you because one of my heroes went to be with the Lord this weekend, Tim Keller. Some of you know Timothy Keller. If you don't, you should get one of his books today in the bookstore. Tim Keller, uh, Redeemer, Presbyterian, New York City, just an amazing church leader, preacher. Not only was he a faithful preacher in all the cultural mix of New York City over the last more than three decades, but he also launched a church planting network that expanded throughout the U.S. and the world. So Tim went to be with his Lord this weekend, but of all the things I learned from Keller over the years, the one thing that always stuck with me was he was just tenacious about how everything came back to grace, how salvation was something you could never grasp and achieve, but something that you could only receive by grace. And so Keller would, would say many things. I'll put it this way. One of the ways he would talk about this was he'd say there's three types of people in the world, okay? Keller, Keller taught me this. Three types of people in the world. He said there are irreligious people, there are religious people, and there are gospel people. And here's what he means by that. Irreligious people don't believe there's any salvation. There's no salvation to be had. There's no salvation to even seek out. Life is just what it is. There's no salvation, irreligious. But then there's the religious people, and they're the ones that believe there's salvation, but they believe they figured out a methodology to get saved. That there's a certain number of behaviors or practices or things to do and to build into your life. And if you follow the right program, you follow the right strategy, then you will find salvation. And that can be inside the church and outside the church, but there's a lot of it inside the church. This salvation strategy, if I do these things and I do them well, then I can hold on to this salvation. I can make my life better. That's Jonah. Irreligious people, religious people, but finally gospel people. And here's what gospel people believe. They believe that there is this thing called salvation, but they believe they can do nothing to achieve it. They can do nothing to grab hold of it. They can do nothing to even co-participate in their salvation. All they can do is receive it by grace alone. That salvation is something that is so far beyond us because we are so far gone, that we are so broken and so sinful that salvation is only something that can come as a pure gift of God poured upon us in grace, mercifully unearned. And it's in the belly of the fish the religious people and sometimes irreligious people become gospel people if they can hear what the Lord is saying to them in the belly of the fish. All you can do is receive. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what Jonah learns in the fish. Stripped away, stripped down to nothing. You know, it's interesting when we come for communion. I love teaching people that when we come forward, the posture as we kneel at the rail is, is to, or whether we're sitting in the pew, wherever we receive is to put out our hands. Uh, some people have been trained to kind of grab the communion bread and, and, and some people kind of like that. They're like, no, no, no. I mean, I've had people I've told that to and they're like, no, 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 I'm, I'm taking hold of my 
salvation. I'm, I'm going to grab that and I, and I want to say, stop that. Because the posture of putting your hands out and having God place this grace into your hands is in fact the posture of our hearts. We can do nothing to earn or even grasp, or even if we could grasp it, we couldn't hold it. All we can do is receive. Receive this incredible unearned reality of God's loving grace. There is love under those waves. There is grace in the guts of that fish. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what Jonah finds in the belly, and that's what we find in the belly of the fish. But not only is the good news in the belly of the fish that God sends the fish to swallow Jonah and God sends the fish to save Jonah, but the amazing news is that God tells the fish to spit Jonah out. That Jonah's not going to stay forever in the fish. That this isn't the end. And oh, how we need to hear this. You know, it's interesting, verse 10, it says, the Lord spoke to the fish and the fish vomited Jonah out on the shore. That's, that's just the scriptures. Vomited him out, just hurled him out. Jonah gave the fish indigestion. How? I mean, if the fish in many ways, as Jonah says, is Sheol, is the place of the dead, is, is this experience of death coming upon you, the power of hell surrounding you, taking your life, bringing you to a place where you say, I, I, this is the worst possible situation I could ever dream or imagine. I am dying here. How can that experience of hell and death be something that you can you know, get spit out from? I mean, it just seems like it's over. At least it feels like it when you're there, right? This is it, this is over. I mean, Jonah, it's interesting, back in chapter one, verse 12, when he says, throw me in the ocean, like hurl me into the sea, Jonah doesn't expect that the Lord's gonna send the fish. He's like, it's over, I get it, I screwed everything up, I'm done. But God wasn't done with Jonah. God was just getting started with Jonah. Why is it that the belly of the fish, hell itself, would spit out this prophet? And the answer is the same for Jonah and the same for you and me. Why would death itself spit us out? Because like Jonah and like in our lives, something greater than Jonah is here. You know, this belly of the fish story is actually a prophecy. We often can miss that. That Jesus, as I mentioned last week in Matthew chapter 12, talks about the story of Jonah. And says of Jonah, he says, um, this, this sinful and adulterous generation is asking for a sign, but the only sign to be given will be the sign of Jonah. And you're like, what is that all about? And then he says this, he says, for as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so will the son of man be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. And then he says, and then on the last day, the people of Nineveh will rise up and condemn this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And then he says this, and something greater than Jonah is here. What does this mean? It means that this story of Jonah in the belly of the fish is actually a prophecy prefiguring something that's coming. Jonah in the belly of the fish is prefiguring Christ himself in hell. For as he says in verse four, I have been thrown away from your sight. God has Jesus in hell 
who cries out on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is in the place of hell, seemingly abandoned. Why? Because Jesus was taking upon himself all the sins and the brokenness of Jonah. God in Jesus Christ was taking on himself all the sins and the brokenness of you and me, all that would cause us to be in defiant rebellion against God, that all fell on Jesus and he went to hell in our place. He was bearing the sins of humanity. But hell, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2, 24, could not contain Jesus, right? Jesus, the spotless son of God, goes to hell and overruns hell. He overcomes the grave. He overcomes that which was most terrifying, the greatest belly of the greatest fish that we would ever known, death and condemnation itself. Jesus overcomes it. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about this. All this is prefiguring Jesus. So why does Jonah get spit out of the whale? Here's why. Oh, by the way, you know in the creed every Sunday, when we say, he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. It's talking about Jonah chapter two. I mean, there's all kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament of Jesus bearing the sins of humanity. The only prophecy in scripture about his resurrection is Jonah chapter two. This story is the prophecy that Jesus is filling. This is what we say every week in the creed. And so why is it that the fish spits out Jonah? Because of verse nine. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. You go, all right, Jonah figured it out. No, there's even more there. Oh, I love to tell the story. There's even more there. Because when Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord, in the Hebrew, he says, Yeshua ta. Salvation, Yeshua ta. And if you listen, you can hear the name Yeshua. Jesus, in the Hebrew. Yeshua. Because as the angel tells Joseph in the dream in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, you shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. The name Yeshua, Jesus, is the word salvation. And Jonah utters, unbeknownst to himself, the name not only of salvation itself, but the Savior himself in the belly of the fish. And what happens? He speaks the word Jesus and the fish has to vomit him up. Why? Because the fish, like hell itself, cannot contain Jesus and cannot contain anyone who calls on the name of Jesus, who has been grafted in and brought into Christ, who has died with Christ in baptism and raised to life in him. You utter the name of Jesus in the belly of the fish and the fish is going to vomit you up. You know, it's interesting, it says the Lord spoke to the fish and then the fish vomited him up. I wonder what the Lord said to the fish. Ever wonder what the Lord said to the fish? Hey fish, did you hear what Jonah just said? I don't know, what did he say? Fish, the Lord says, he said the name Yeshua. He said the name Jesus. He said the name of the savior of the world. So guess what, fish? It's time to bring him up. You cannot contain him. He said the word. He said the name. And so it is for us. Friends, in our lives, 
Whatever our belly of the fish moment is, and it will happen again and again, it's not a promise that we're going to get out of it with our skin on. It's not a promise that everything's going to work out fine, but the promise for us is that at the end of this day, the greatest fish that can ever come into our lives, the greatest fear, the greatest monster that we are terrified of, he has already been beaten back. He's already been overcome. He cannot hold you and I because the name of Jesus gives hell indigestion because of what he's won for us. You know, I I close with this, that in the early church, as the Christians were being slaughtered and persecuted by Rome and it was very dangerous to be a Christian and you didn't know if you were meeting someone who was a Christian or not a Christian or a spy the ways that the Christians in the first few centuries would identify one another with was was by you know as you're chatting with someone you meet someone new and just just you know with your foot you just make a little squiggle in the dirt and if they were a Christian they'd recognize it and they'd take their foot and they'd complete the squiggle the other way. And you know what the squiggles became? It's what you see on the back of cars up and down the tollway. It's the sign of the fish. It's the sign of Jonah. Why did the early church under persecution claim this image, not the cross, but the sign of the fish, the sign of Jonah as their sign of Christianity? It's because they were living day by day in the belly of the fish. And they said, this is where our hope is. This is where our salvation is. Even if we don't think we're going to get out of this belly, one day in the resurrection, we will be vomited out in glory. What a phrase. That could go on a tattoo. Vomited out in glory. (laughs) There's good news when we're in the belly of the fish. There's good news because the Jonah story tells us that the Lord sends the fish to save us. And ultimately, the Lord causes the fish to spit us out because of the name of Jesus. You know, I sing differently these days than I used to before my pre-conversion. Instead, I sing like this. When through the deep waters thy pathways shall lie, my strength all sufficient shall be thy supply. Let me start that again. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, The rivers of woe shall not thee overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress, the soul that on Jesus hath fled for repose. I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. In our hardest moments, when we're in the belly of the fish, remember the good news. 
that something greater than Jonah is here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.